there's more to this life than I thought. And James inspires me. The things he says have encouraged me. It's like there's a walk, there's a path, and it's leading to something more real than I've ever known before, and it's exciting. I get around James and I hear things that help me in my life, my work. This work he talks about has become my work. I am excited about the possibility that other people could be affected, other people could be inspired to work on themselves, to grow, to, to realize there's more to this life. Rex was over the other day, and I told him I was writing a talk on fasting. And he said, oh, that's what the Catholics are doing now. I said, oh, is it Lent? He said, yeah, they're giving up this, they're giving up that. And I was born into a Catholic family and raised Catholic and went to parochial school for the first six years of my primary education, my formatory education. And I was formed in that way. Uh, there, there was, yeah, I was formed. Who, who is talking now was formed. That I or those eyes were all acquired through that educational system. And a lot of other eyes were acquired through the rest of the educational system of life. It's only the second education that gives me the awareness to be able to say that that part of me is acquired and that part of me is acquired and that part of me is acquired and I haven't figured out what isn't acquired yet. And so I go right back to what Ospensky said, everything is false personality, now find what isn't. But I've noticed that all I've found is what is. I have to usually defer to the students to find out what isn't because they're the only ones who found out have found their essence yet. The people who are still the people who are teaching this, they haven't found their essence yet. They're still sorting through all their personality stuff. Kind of like the pyramids turned upside down. The, the tiny part is down the bottom where the students are and the fat part where nobody knows anything is up the top where the where the teachers are or something like that. It's all turned around anyway. It's when we don't know, we think we do. When we do know, we know we don't. It's like the Tao says, you know, the, the Tao that can be spoken of isn't the Tao. You know, the, the principle that can be, can be enunciated, that's not it. But when we first start off, the first 10 or 20 years in this work, we think, oh, I know, I can enunciate it. I can. But later, after that 10 or 20 or 30 years, we realize, oh, I don't know anything. We become so aware of our nothingness. We talked a little bit about fasting, and I, rem I could remember, you know, what it was like. He said, yeah, they're not eating meat, and they're not drinking coffee, they're not sh no sugar. In the well, of course, that's not true. People are doing whatever they want to do, just like they always do. They're just lying about it for 40 days, <laughs> which is fine, you know, that's the because that's the way we are. But we don't even know we're lying about it. You see, people will do it, and they don't even know it. They'll eat something, and they won't even know they did it, so they can't even say, oh, I, I did that. They won't even know. They're not even aware enough to do it. How many times have you been on a diet and found yourself eating something you weren't supposed to be eating? Well, let's not even count them, because you ran out of fingers and toes already. So forget about it. It's just, it just doesn't happen. Well, that's how many times you caught yourself. How many times do you think you didn't catch yourself? Well, I tell you, it was a lot more. Remember, we used to charge somebody a nickel for every time they said, I know? It finally got to, okay, you owe me the rest of your life. You're, every penny you're ever going to make for the rest of eternity, you owe me. Just put it in the jar now. We can't catch ourselves. Someone else catches us. You just said it. I did not. And then we start to get belligerent about it. Well, then it's all over. We'll never become aware when we're defending ourselves. So fasting, as most esoteric wisdom, is almost totally misunderstood. And it's because it's either fanatically embraced on one side or it's resisted as the pendulum swings to the other side. So you talk about fasting and people look at it as this bizarre religious thing or this Ramadan or Lent or prayer and fasting you know, or, or, or somebody going on a hunger fast to make the government do something or to make somebody do something. And I'm not saying that any of those things are wrong. I'm not saying that any of those things are right. What I'm saying is that fasting is misunderstood. People either cling to it fanatically 
or they resist it fanatically. And either one of those things are based in darkness. They're based in ignorance. They're based in not understanding. And the thing about esoteric wisdom is that it can be understood, but you must work to understand it. You must apply yourself and you must be willing to change your mind. For most of us, that's impossible because we're right, because the way we see things is the way they are. And for someone to come along and say, well, it's not that way. All that is, is them, is that person who comes and says that, knocking the chip off our shoulder. And then the fight begins. We want to then pound them because they don't see the truth, because they need our help to see the way we see. But you see, the thing is, is that nobody wants to see the way somebody else sees. The reason we have so much trouble, teacher-student, is because you don't want to see what I want to show you. You want me to see the way it is for you so that I will understand why you are the way you are. And that's fine. If you want me to understand why you are the way you are, I now understand. You're asleep, you're unconscious, you're mechanical. Now, I understand why you are the way you are. Would you like to be some other way? If you would, you won't be able to hang on to that long enough to get through one conversation. You will defend yourself. When I start to tell you what you're doing, you will defend yourself. You may not come right out with it, but you will inside be defending yourself at every turn. That is not the condition of someone who wants to change their level of being. Someone who wants to change their level of being understands their need. They value the work. They value the teacher. They value what's being said because they understand their poverty. But when we think we're rich, we don't understand our poverty, and so therefore we cannot value what is valuable. Fasting is like that. Babel, confusion of tongues from Genesis 11, has thoroughly obfuscated the truth of esotericism. What is the confusion of tongues? The confusion of tongues is self-will run riot. I know what's right. The way I see it is the way it is. I'm right, you're wrong, you need to see it the way I see it. That is what the confusion of tongues is based in. It is based in this idea that we are separate, in this idea of duality, in this idea that you and I are not one, that you and I are different. There are levels to everything. It's like Paris. The thing about Paris is you have to go there to be there. Connie was just in Las Vegas and she said they went to Paris. I guess it's some hotel or something. They went to Paris and it was like being in Paris. Well, if you've been in Paris, it's not like being in Paris because it's like being in Las Vegas in a hotel. And no matter how much they try and make it like Paris, it's not Paris because to be in Paris, you have to go there. You have to be there. You can't be in Paris unless you're there. This is the same way. We get in states of consciousness where we think we're in Paris, but we're not. We get in states of consciousness where we think we're conscious, but we're not. We get in states of consciousness where we think we're giving something our attention, but we're not. But we're in states of consciousness where we imagine that we are. It looks like Paris. I think there was somebody actually spoke French. Well, maybe not, but it was some foreign language. You see, we'll, we'll take almost anything. Well, they had crepes over there for breakfast, so I'm sure it was Paris. Yeah, and the, the, you see the little tiny portions that they gave and the sauce on the plate? I'm, yeah, I'm sure it's Paris. No, it's not. It's just a place that's made to look like it. Understanding is like a place. You can visit it or you can reside there. Once it's your home, you never lose it because it stacks vertically. Understanding stacks vertically. It's built one block upon another. One unit of understanding is laid on top of another unit of understanding. And then the next unit of understanding is laid on top of that unit of understanding. So it stacks vertically. I just want you to think about it this way because it helps me to see that understanding is something that has to be built. 
You can't just suspend it in midair. You don't just get a piece of it in there. You suspend it in midair. It has to rest on something. It stands under. There's something that has to stand under understanding. It has to be based on the truth, on some truth, some real truth. And once it is, then understanding can be built on that. But as I said, it stacks vertically. To understand esoteric fasting better, we need to get above the stone level to the more flexible water or wine level of the truth. To understand fasting, we have to look at it as more than just not eating chocolate or not drinking coffee or not eating meat or restricting ourselves for a certain amount of time in order to get points with the church or points in heaven or points with God. It's not for our merit that we do it. As long as it's for meritoriousness, it's because we do not understand the esoteric truth of fasting. Speaking of demons, another misunderstood concept, Jesus said, or Jack said, whoever, if you have to have it, Jack said, then Jack said, you remember Jack, Jack and the Beanstalk? Jack said, but this kind does not go out except by prayer and fasting. Well, that was in Matthew chapter 17, verse 21. Maurice Nicole said, all the absurdities and cruelties of life, we'll get back to that demon thing, so don't worry about it. All the, all the absurdities and cruelties of life, the waste and imbecilities Vain glory and insincerity, lies, pretense, falsities and misunderstandings are due to one definite cause, demons. No, he didn't say demons. <laughs> I just wanted to make sure you were listening. He didn't say demons, but he could have. Here's what he said the one definite cause was. Can you imagine what the one definite cause was? Why, other people? People do not remember themselves. This is deeper than sleep. People do not remember themselves. The sleeping people can't remember themselves except in their sleep. And then the self that they're remembering is not their real self. It's not anything like their real self because they're remembering themselves in their sleep. Where do you suppose we remember ourselves most of the time? In our sleep. Yeah. And you can tell that people are remembering themselves in their sleep because they don't know it. But when you start to question whether you're really remembering yourself or not, when you stop saying, well, I, I remembered myself and then I did this, when you stop saying things like that, telling those stories, you'll know that you're getting closer. Here's what you remember. This is the closest you get to remembering yourself. I'm nothing. I'm just nothing. It's kind of pitiful. After all this, all of this, all of these years on this planet, all these years of study and work, I'm nothing. I mean, I'm so aware that I've got so far to go. There's no way, there's no way I could fill this up. It's just... My need is so great, and I feel so unequipped to deal with it. I just don't have what I need to have to deal with this, to cope with this. That is beginning to remember something more real about you, about yourself. That's the beginning. Self-remembering, as I've said before, has, there's different qualities and different kinds of self-remembering. There's all kinds of self-remembering. It takes all forms. When we don't remember ourselves, we're victims of the stars, the planets, nature the great machine that is nature, society, humanity, demons. We can be possessed by demons. We can be controlled by demons, by mass sleep, by history, by our own history and by the history of our family and by the history of our country and by the history of our world, by the history of our race. And we are controlled by that. When we don't remember ourselves, it's an endless cycle of pain and misery fed by the energy of incoming impressions that are left untransformed. And why are they left untransformed? Because there's nobody at the door to transform them. There's nobody at the door to throw the switch to make sure that they're transformed as they come in. There's no gatekeeper because the gatekeeper fell asleep. But the gatekeeper is dreaming that he's wide awake and making sure that everything that comes through the door is transformed. 
Everything is cleansed. Everything is purified. Everything is made right at the door. He's sleeping, dreaming. How many times have you dreamed something and then there was this niggling? Sometimes you have to get up and go to the bathroom, but you dream, you're, you know, and then all of a sudden it's like, oh, I still have to get up and go to the bathroom. It still hurts, you know, and so you finally, you wake up. And even though you don't want to wake up, it's unpleasant to wake up to go to the bathroom, but you wake up anyway, hopefully. <laughs> if you're not, then you're a bedwetter and we don't even want to talk to you. I can probably edit that out. <laughs> You know, they don't, they just don't get to, they just don't get the good stuff. The podcast people, they just get whatever we can give them. They can't, they can't have what we can have. You know, it reminds me of the story about this woman comes to Jesus and she's, oh, son of David, oh, son of David, um, my daughter's sick. And he doesn't, and he just doesn't say anything to her at all. And the disciples said, tell her to get lost or something. He said, you know, and he says, um, it's not right to take the children's bread and feed it to the dogs. But see, people don't understand that Jesus was giving the woman a hint. He was trying to tell her that because she wasn't a Jew, she had no right to call him son of David. So she was approaching him the wrong way. So then she got the hint and she came to him and said, Oh Lord, even the dogs eat the scraps that fall from the master's table. And that touched his heart. And he turned to her and he said, Okay, well, go your way. Your, your daughter's healed. If that happened or not, I don't know. I wasn't there. Maybe it's just a story, but it's a good story because it tells something about this work and how you and I must approach this work. If we approach this as if we have some right, we have approached this work in the wrong way. If we approach this work like dogs that just get the scraps that fall from the master's table, we have approached this work from our nothingness, from a real sense of our need, from a real sense of our inability, from a real sense, a real consciousness of I can't do and I really am nothing. When we do that, we get a response. We talked about prayer a while back and that prayers request response. This is the same thing. Request response. When we request properly, we will get the response. When we don't request properly, when our heart isn't right, when we haven't put ourselves in the proper position, we cannot receive help. You have to be at the third state of consciousness before you can receive help. You have to be at the third level of consciousness before you can receive help. You can't receive help in the second level of consciousness. And the second level of consciousness is the one that says, I deserve this. I should have that. Give me this. That's the second level. That's the level of sleep. The third level, you become aware of what you are. And when you become aware of what you are, you realize you have no rights. The only right you have is a right that you can't reach, the right not to be negative. But that has something to do with you. You have to do something about that. And if you can do something about that, if you can reach the third level of consciousness and you can do something about that, then you can receive help. Because otherwise, help will not come to a negative place. You have to get yourself in the right frame of mind first. Untransformed energy feeds negative eyes. What are negative eyes? Well, you know, look, at, look at the Gospels. Look at esoteric teachings when they talk about demons. They're really talking about negative states, negative eyes. Have you ever seen anything more demonic than yourself when you're angry, greedy, enraged? If you've seen something more demonic, then you haven't spent enough time looking in the mirror. You haven't spent enough time observing yourself if you can find someone more demonic, more negative than you. You haven't done your work. That's all there is to it. If you can find people worse than you, you have not done your work. You have not reached the level of work of the third state of consciousness where you become aware of yourself. When you become aware of yourself, you don't start to see other people as worse than you. In fact, if you do see other people, you only see yourself in them. It's a terrible thing to have happen. <laughs> it really is. It's almost deafening. The noise it creates in your head is almost deafening. Until finally, it just, you just accept it and then just 
that's it. The noise no longer bothers you. But untransformed energy feeds negative eyes, negative state, automatic reactions, attitudes, pictures, thoughts, feelings. All the things that we take as our real selves. The cost to humanity of not remembering ourselves is incalculable. The billions and billions and billions of lives and dollars and events and tragedies that have stacked up over the generations from people not remembering themselves cannot be calculated. The external part of us is driven by constantly changing circumstances. The inner man is dragged along with the outer man until the inner man becomes strong enough to begin to lead. Curtis is traveling and he's back east for a couple of weeks and he calls me every day and he called and said, we were talking and he, and he said something about changing and I said, well, you know, the thing is, is you're not going to change. And you've got to be able to see this about yourself. This thing about you isn't going to change. This is the way it is. You have to make it passive. You are going to have to find something more valuable to put yourself in. It's like trading cars. You find a car and you have that car, but then it starts to break down and this happens and that happens and you start to think, you know, maybe it's time for me to get a new car and pass this along to somebody else. And I can afford one now, so it's probably time for me to do that. And so you go and you look for a new car and you find a new car and something that you think is more valuable than the one you currently have. So you get the new car. But there are other times when you think you need a new car and you go and you look and you see what they want for them and you see what they do and you see what it is and you think, you know what, my car's fine. And that's how we are. We are comfortable with ourselves. We aren't going to change. We aren't going to trade this for that. But when we become uncomfortable with ourselves through self-observation, then we're willing to trade. Then we're willing to find something else then we're willing to pay the price to get something better. But if we're comfortable, we're not willing to pay the price. And so if you're comfortable with this thing about you, if you've got it justified, you've got it rationalized, you've got it all supported by buffers and supported by all of the stuff, and this is really right to stay this way, you're not going to change. You have more self-observation to do. You're not seeing what you really like. You're not seeing what it's really costing you. You're not calculating the incalculable cost of being asleep, of staying who you are and what you are. You're not aware. And so nothing's going to change. So I said to Curtis, you know, this isn't going to change. It's never going to change. You are going to have to give it up in favor of something else. And he could see that that was true, but he also could see it was not going to happen now. And now is all there is. If it's not going to happen now, then you don't want it to happen. If you want it to happen, really want it to happen, then now you will begin to do what you need to do to make it passive and then find whatever else is there for you. Well, we'll talk a little bit more about that, too. When we separate more consciously, some energy from incoming impressions gets transformed into higher, more positive energy. But not all of it. Well, where does that, where does that energy go? Well, that energy goes where it always goes, into the negative thing, into the negative eyes, into the negative states, into the pictures, the associations, the thoughts, the feelings that just run on themselves, run on their own. The demons, the pictures, the attitudes, all of those things that we call our real selves, that energy goes into that. Whatever is not transformed goes into that. Until we practice self-remembering, we remain at the mercy of changing outer circumstances. There's no way to get around this until we can actually begin to see what it is that is under the law of accident, which is what you call yourself. What we are calling ourselves is under the law of accident. There is something else about us that is not under the law of accident, that is under the law of fate. And that's something else that we don't know, we won't know until we can start to separate ourselves from this thing that we do know that we call ourselves. But this is such a, a horrendous task. 
It's just so difficult to ask anyone to do this. Anyone who understands, understands that there's no way that they can do it. If you understand what I'm asking of you, then you have to say, I can't do that. I, I, I don't even know where to begin. That is the beginning. That is the beginning of wisdom. The Bible says fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. What do you think that means? Do you think it means you should fear God? No. It means fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. Well, who is God? Well, who is God is who is running your life. You. Unfortunately, you need to fear that thing that is running you. And you need to, when I say fear, I, need, I, mean, I don't mean you need to tremble and issue it. What I mean is you need to understand what it is. Because fear is really a lack of understanding. It's a lack of light. Think about it. There's nothing to fear if you understand. There's nothing to fear if you're in the light or you're going to die. So if you knew what was going to happen when you died, you wouldn't be afraid. But you're afraid of death because you don't know. And people who are not afraid of death are people who think they do know. Do they? I don't know. Maybe they do, maybe they don't. It's not remembering the personality, the outer man, acquired by religion, education, but it's remembering something behind the acquired. Self-remembering is not remembering the personality. It's remembering that you are not your personality. It's remembering that there's something behind that. Well, what is that something? Well, you don't know. You just don't know. So you can't really remember it, but you can taste it. You can sense it. You can, you can begin to feel it. You can begin to catch a flavor of it and a smell of it. You can smell it on the wind in the same way that sailors who are out to sea for a long time can smell land long before they can ever see it. And it's like people who have lived inland for a long time and they get to the sea. And before they get to the sea, they can smell the salt air. It's like that. Before you get to it, you can smell it. You can begin to taste it. And taste and smell are very much a part of each other, although we don't generally see them as such. They are. To remember that you're a Christian, to remember that you're a Jew or a Muslim, to remember that you're Hindu or you're rich or you're poor, to remember that you're handsome or that you're ugly or that you're smart or that you're stupid is not self-remembering. But that is what we remember. Do you see that that's what you remember? You remember you're a Christian and so therefore you don't do that. You remember you're a Muslim and so therefore you fast during the day until sundown and Ramadan. You remember that you're a Hindu and therefore you first give thanks to Ganesha. You know, you remember that you're rich and so you don't do that. You remember that you're poor and you can't have that. You remember that you're ugly and so that girl's not looking at you for that reason. And you remember that you're handsome and they're all probably looking at you for that reason. You see how it all, it's all just all twisted and warped because it's not us. We remember that. We're not remembering ourselves. What we need to remember is outside of that, behind that, something closer to essence must be remembered. We must taste our nothingness very deeply. Nothingness attracts real eye. The same way that nectar attracts hummingbirds and bees. No mystery to it. It's just the way it is. Puffed up with knowledge and virtue, self-love and self-values blocks the door to everything real. Self-remembering has endless forms. It's never based on self-merit. All of that puffed up self-merit stuff, all that does is bar the door to self-remembering. It just blocks the way. Gradually, we begin to know a profoundly emotional feeling of the truth about ourselves. Our own unreality, which we've taken as ourselves. All these things that we say about ourselves, that we know about ourselves. All the things that we've taken as ourselves. All these things are the unreality of us. What we know is the unreality of us. What we don't know is the reality of us. That's why I've said so many times before, you must be comfortable with not knowing if you're going to do this work and progress. If you're going to do this work and just be puffed up, if you're going to do this work and just make it a, another thing that you add to yourself, then you don't have to do any of that. You know, you don't have to have any emotional feeling of the truth. You don't ever have to realize any of this. 
you can just continually add all this stuff to yourself and you just become bigger and bigger and bigger. Your false personality stays active and your essence stays passive and that's it. To do it the other way is very difficult where your personality becomes passive and your essence begins to become active. That's very difficult because we don't even know what our essence is. We have to first find something that's close to it. And what that is in the beginning is just better eyes, eyes that see the truth of the work and that begin to want to be around it, that begin to be attracted to the work, that begin to be attracted to people in the work. And the other eyes will try and keep you from them. The other eyes will say, well, she's this and he's that, and they think they're doing the work, but they aren't. All those eyes, all those negative little eyes will try and keep you from doing this, and they'll try and keep you from people who can influence you in work ways. And you have to make them passive. And the only way to make them passive is through valuation, valuation of the work. When you begin to see where you really are, you look at it and you say, oh my God, I'm in trouble. I'm really in trouble. I'm asleep all the time. I can't do anything. I'm not one. When you really see that, then you will value the work. Imaginary I, false personality, the acquired identity, must be made passive if we are to be free from all of this useless suffering. This world is a pain factory of useless, unnecessary suffering. You can't turn on a television or a radio or pick up a newspaper or a magazine without seeing it everywhere. The whole world is crazy now. You know, the stock markets all over the world are, are, are going nuts. People are gripped with fear. They're making insane decisions based on nothing other than fear. It has nothing to do with numbers. It has nothing to do with anything that's real. It's based solely on fear. That's insanity. And that insanity is where we will stay until we can begin to make that self that lives in that, that personality, that identity that lives in that, that lives by that, until we can begin to make that passive. That's where we live. This is the thing about fasting. Is this not the fast which I choose to loosen the bonds of wickedness, to undo the bands of the yoke, and to let the oppressed go free and break every yoke? This is what Isaiah said to the, to the Israelites once upon a time. He said, you know, you're, you're fasting, you're doing all this stuff, but it's all for the wrong reason. It's all for your merit. It's like why you study the work. You study the work to show yourself approved. Approved by who? Well, by all the other people doing the work and by yourself. It's even worse that we show ourselves approved to ourselves. When you show yourself approved to yourself, that's the worst crime that there is. You have now lied to yourself. Lying to other people is one thing. Lying to yourself, it's like chopping your own head off. When you lie to yourself, that's the sin that just keeps on giving. <laughs> You have to stay put. You have accepted yourself as you are. You have justified yourself. You've rationalized yourself. And you will not change yourself. You will not make yourself passive because now yourself is just fine. And so you're lost. We must remember ourselves while we struggle not to identify with a negative emotion. It's not enough to struggle with a negative emotion. Well, I don't want to be negative. Anybody who gets stopped by a cop can do that. Well, hello, officer. Yes, sir. You know, sir. Everybody can do that. Well, most everybody can do that. Some people obviously can't. Some people go so crackers they can't. You know, they just start screaming and yawning and then they go away in handcuffs. Or they go with extra tickets, you know, whatever. And their car gets impounded and then they, whatever. But most people have learned. Yes, sir. No, sir. I was, I was not speeding. No, I was not. How fast were you going? Gee, I don't know. You know, I wasn't looking. I was paying attention to the road. We come up with all these patent lies. Well, we've got these lies. They're just there. They just come up. They just arise. Have you noticed that? That lies don't have to be made up. They just arise and pop out of your mouth. It's amazing. It's just amazing. We have like lying eyes that just take over in time of need and they just lie away. It's absolutely astounding. When you separate, the force is withdrawn from the reaction. 
This is how energy begins to be transformed. But here's the pitfall. This is where we don't see that there's a second force, an opposing force that nails us right here. Now, when the unclean spirit goes out of a man, when the negative eye goes out of a man, when the negative state goes out of a man, when you get yourself out of that state, it passes through waterless places seeking rest and does not find it. What are waterless places? Places where there's no truth. Then it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds it unoccupied, swept, and put in order. Then it goes and takes along with it seven other spirits more wicked than itself. And they go in and live there. And the last state of that man becomes worse than the first. That is the way it will also be with this evil generation. Well, what is this evil generation? Before people go totally crackers here with this talk, with this, what is this evil generation? This evil generation are all of these eyes, all of these selves, all of these acquired attitudes and habits of thought and habits of feeling and habits of action that I have acquired that reside in me. It's an entire generation from the time I was born until this very moment, collecting, acquiring all of these eyes, all of these attitudes, all of these imitated things, all of this education, acquiring all of this. It's a whole evil generation, and they all want the same thing. They all want to survive. And when they're cast out, they go and they travel in waterless places. They come back with more. And then you end up worse than you were. Have you ever noticed that you make some progress, and then you fall back, and you end up worse than you were? That's why. Because the energy doesn't just stop because you tossed it. You have to keep working on it. Taking force from one automatic reaction it will pass into and strengthen another one unless you remember yourself. It's not enough to simply transform the impression as it comes in. You must be remembering yourself while you do it. What self? It's how Jess got screwed up with his thought about, well, I hurt people intentionally. It's because he wasn't remembering himself while he was working with a negative emotion. You see? He wasn't remembering himself. What was working with the negative emotion was himself, was Jess himself, not the work working with the negative emotion, but Jess working with the negative emotion. Because we don't have a self to remember, we need to remember the work because it's closer to our real self. When you remember yourself while you're making whatever effort that you're making, the meaning of the work and your aim is what you're remembering. You're remembering the meaning of the work. You're remembering your aim to give energy a definite direction. When you begin to remember that, your work, your aim, while you are working with a negative emotion, that gives the energy a definite direction. It doesn't just send it into waterless places. It sends it into places where there's water and there's wine, where there's truth, where it can be nourished, where it can be transformed, where it can be kept on being sent until it finds its rightful place. And the little eyes have a rightful place. It's just not in the throne room. It's not in the control room. It's not running things. It's not at the keyboard of the computer inputting then force of the work will increase in you. This is fasting of the highest order. You starve the outer man and increase the power of the work. Because you can't really increase the power of the inner man because you don't know what it is. But you do increase the power of the work. And this is what we need to do for a long time. I'll let you know when you can stop doing that. <laughs> yeah, I'll let you know when it's time to move on to something else. But for a long time, a very long time, whenever you fast... Do not put on a gloomy face as the hypocrites do, for they neglect their appearance so that they will be noticed by men when they are fasting. Truly I say to you, they have their reward in full. But you, when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, 
so that your fasting will not be noticed by men. You must do this work for the sake of this work, not for results. When you do this work for results, you end up doing this work for self-merit. When you do this work for self-merit, the only thing that gains is what you don't want to gain. You just make the false personality stronger and you don't want to continually make it stronger. This is the battle of a lifetime. This is the beast that receives a fatal head wound and continually comes back to life, the false personality. It is as satanic and as demonic as anything ever was. Now, I'm not saying they're not good parts of the personality. There are. But the false personality is the nemesis. It is the adversary. And you must deal with the false personality in a way that is going to diminish it, make it passive. You've got to starve it. You can't continually feed it. And when you do that, you will then begin to strengthen the work in you. And as the work grows and becomes stronger and more valuable in you, it will lead you to something more real about yourself. You don't ever have to worry about that. Often the practical application of these ideas sounds like it's going to be easy. The ideas sound great. When we actually run into a situation or a person who's being a little more difficult than we'd like, we find it's not as easy as we thought it was going to be. If you've hit a snag with some aspect of this work and its practical application in your everyday life, I invite you to write James at SolidRockVista.com. Sometimes a fresh perspective is all it takes to get us back on the right track.